In the fiction of C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the lion, and the little girl Lucy meet after a time apart. Aslan greets her. Welcome, child. Aslan, you're bigger, says Lucy. That's because you are older, little one, answers Aslan. Lucy asks, not because you are? And that's when the great lion responds, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And this is what happens as we grow in our faith. We discover that our Lord Jesus is far bigger and far better than we ever imagined. Our concept of his greatness and glory expands and deepens. We see him as bigger and as better. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. The writer explains how Jesus is greater than Judaism. He wants us to be proud of Jesus. He is better than all that came before. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Israel that included priests and a temple. But the ministry of Jesus eclipsed both those priests and their temple. Jesus is a priest of a superior order of Melchizedek. And he comes to work in a better temple in heaven himself. And at the end of chapter 8, we learned how that Jesus even cuts a better covenant with better promises. Now in chapter 9, we learn how he offers us a better sacrifice. Well, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. God gave Moses blueprints for a tent or a tabernacle. It was a precursor of a later temple. It was a mobile house of worship that traveled with Israel along their wilderness wanderings. Its courtyard, in its courtyard was the altar on which the sacrifices were offered. And then the tent itself was made of two rooms. We're told the first part in which was the lampstand. In that first room was the golden menorah. And then the table and the showbread, fresh bread, was on that table, which acknowledged God as the source of the people's sustenance. He says, which is called the sanctuary. This first room, or holy place, was behind the first veil, and it was called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. The Ark, or chest, was five, four foot long by two foot high by two foot wide. And over it rested God's presence and glory. It was His throne on earth. It was God's meeting place with His people. And this Ark contained three items, in which were the golden pot that had the manna. Evidently, they had a sample jar of the miracle manna. Aaron's rod that budded, you remember God's desert confirmation of the priestly family was this, this almond branch that had budded. And the tablets of the covenant, the very stones on which God had imprinted the Ten Commandments were in that Ark of the Covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. These carved angels were the finishing touch on this mysterious ark. And then the author writes, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, 
And I want to yell, why not? What a bummer. Here is the greatest Bible study that never was. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask for the writer of Hebrews, and I'm going to demand the whole story. A breakdown of these verses would have been fabulous. You know, for everything about the earthly tabernacle cast a light on New Testament truths. You recall back in chapter 8, verse 5, the author told us that the tabernacle was actually a small-scale replica of heaven itself. And so much of its symbolism foreshadowed Jesus. The New Testament Gospels open up with this analogy. John introduces Jesus in chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt. The Word literally is tabernacled among us. The Old Testament tabernacle was the perfect picture of Jesus Christ. Well, it would have been nice to get an explanation of how, under divine inspiration, rather than just left up to our conjecture, but the author had more pressing matters to address. Verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. The old covenant limited the tabernacle or access to the tabernacle and thus access to God. See, the people couldn't enter the tabernacle at all, not even into the first room. They stopped at the sacrifice in the outer court. The priests could enter the first room, the holy place, but only the high priest had access behind that veil into the presence of God. He says, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. Only one man could enter God's glory, and that only once a year. And whenever he entered, he didn't dare come empty-handed. No, he came with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. For it was not without blood, we're told, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Of course, the wages of sin is death. And so animals were, salt, were slaughtered, and yet they gained only a limited access to God. That the sacrifices were annually repeated highlighted their inadequacy. And these repetitious sacrifices turned Judaism into largely a ceremonial religion. Verse 9 puts it this way. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. The Jewish law spoke symbolically of hope and promises, but it didn't affect a man's inner life. Verse 10 tells us why. For the law was concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Tabernacle worship involved outward, superficial rituals regarding diet and hygiene, but it didn't purify the soul. And trust me, you can have clean hands and still have a filthy heart. Well, verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. 
Rather than ceremonial, Jesus' work was eternal. He dealt with the good things to come. And it was spiritual. Jesus impacted our heavenly status. For the sacrifice that Jesus made, verse 12, is not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Realize you measure the potency of a cleanser by the number of applications it requires. Don't you? The strong stuff gets it out immediately. And the same is true of sacrificial blood. The Old Testament sacrifices were repeated annually, but Jesus offered his blood once and for all. His sacrifice never had to be repeated or reapplied. The blood of animals covered our sin for a time. They earned a temporary probation, but Jesus provides us a permanent pardon. For he says in verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And here the author refers to Numbers 19 in the ashes of a heifer. This was the way the old covenant was dedicated. A red heifer was sacrificed. Then its ashes were mixed with water. And then a hyssop, which was a leafy twig, was then dipped into that ashy mixture, that mixture of ash and water, and sprinkled on all that was to be dedicated. On the people, on the priest, on the furniture in the tabernacle, on the tabernacle itself. And this was all a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus in its spiritual effect. For on the cross, Jesus spilt his blood for us. Now its effects are mixed with the water of God's spirit, and they are now sprinkled on us who believe. And this is far more than ceremonial, for it cleanses our conscience, and it produces peace. And it qualifies us to serve the living God. Some of you former Methodists will be happy to know that in a sense we're all cleansed by sprinkling. That's right. We're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. Amen. Once Good Morning America interviewed Albert Speer, a former Nazi, Speer was the industrial genius that kept Hitler's factories running during World War II. He was the only one of 24 war criminals tried in Nuremberg to ever admit any guilt. Speer was sentenced and imprisoned for two decades and was remorseful to the very end. In fact, Speer said in the interview, I was jailed 20 years, but I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people. I can't get rid of it. Sadly, this was Albert Speer's last public statement. He could never rid himself of his guilt and shame. And none of us can. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse the guilty conscience of an Albert Speer or of yours. For verse 15 says, And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, 
for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now we talk about the old and new covenants as testaments, the New Testament we call it. For that's what it actually is. It is a last will and testament. And death is what activates the promises of a testament. Say you're rich Uncle Bob. He promises you the boat and his house and some stocks and bonds. In fact, he, he says he's going to give you everything. But until he dies, you don't get a dime. And likewise, God's redemption. Even those who died before Jesus, they had to wait. See, the effects of the testament weren't released until the testator had died. Thus, before Jesus, God's promises were unattainable. They were tied up in probate, so to speak. But at the cross, they were released in Christ Jesus. Now we can experience God's blessings in Christ. And this was the truth that made these Hebrews want to be Jesus followers. Verse 18. For therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. When Moses launched the old covenant, he dedicated everything by the sprinkling of blood. The book of the law, the tabernacle, its furniture, even the people. The point being that a covenant with God was a bloody affair. And all this blood and death stressed to Israel the seriousness of their sin. See, because of their actions, because of your actions, your own innocent lamb had to be taken and its throat slid. And often that lamb was to you like a pet. It was an attachment you had with that little lamb. As a matter of fact, let's bring this home to us today. Just imagine taking your household pet, your dog or your cat, putting little Spot or Rover on a leash, and taking your pet to the priest, where it is to be slaughtered because of the stupid stuff you've done. Boy, if we still did that kind of thing, we'd see our sin in a different light, wouldn't we? Sin is a serious crime, and it deserves a severe penalty. He says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. This was the law's primary premise. God's forgiveness requires the shedding of blood. You know, today, we walk into a place of worship. It's clean. It's sanitary. But boy, if you had walked into the tabernacle, it would look and smell like a beef cattle slaughterhouse or a meat market. The job of the priest was more like a butcher. 
One author writes this, The Old Testament sacrificial system was a gory affair indeed. During the thousand plus years of the Old Covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. So considering that each bull's sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood and each goat a quart, the Old Covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. During the Passover, a ditch had to be dug from the temple into the Kidron Valley just to channel off the blood. It was a sacrificial drain pipe. Leviticus 17 verse 11 tells us clearly, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. God told Adam and Eve from the very beginning that the wages of sin is death. And since the nutrients of life flow to the rest of the body through the bloodstream, Biblical reasoning demands that the debt of sin be paid by the spilling of innocent blood. And of course, this is why many liberal theologians ridicule Christianity. They call it a slaughterhouse faith or a bloody religion. The necessity of blood offends their modern sensibilities. They consider it barbaric. And I have one response to them. So what? We don't care what you think. It doesn't matter what a bunch of theologians postulate. If God is doing the forgiving, he can set the terms for that forgiveness however he chooses. And God has told us unequivocally, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. People who try to eliminate the cross and the blood and sanitize Christianity strip it of its power. In Revelation 5, when John visits a future heaven, he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus, the Lamb of God, will bear the marks of crucifixion for all eternity. And to negate the importance of his blood insults the Savior. As the old hymn puts it, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Have you been washed by that blood? And then verse 23 tells us, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Moses dedicated the replica of God's throne, the tabernacle, with the blood of bulls, but heaven itself has been dedicated with Jesus' own blood. He says, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Jewish priest offered his sacrifices annually, but Jesus has offered himself once and for all. And this is why we Protestants reject the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation or their administration of communion. 
the belief that the waver, wafer and the wine of communion turn into the literal body and blood of Christ when offered. If that were so, Jesus is sacrificed again and again and again at each Mass. God forbid! No, He was sacrificed once and for all. On the cross, all that needed to be done for our salvation was done, and it was done once and for all. And then verse 27 tells us, For as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. And note here, the Bible refutes reincarnation. You don't return in another form. No, when you die, you meet your maker and you give an account of the life that you've lived. No do-overs. No second chances. Upon death, don't expect to see tunnels and bright lights. C.S. Lewis tells us what to expect the moment we die. He writes, There will be God without disguise Something so overwhelming that it will strike every irresist- it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it's impossible to stand up. No, that will be the time for choosing. It will, it will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we had realized it or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. You know the problem with near-death experiences? They're near death. They didn't die. (laughs) Trust me, when you die, you'll see God. And you'll face your judge. Verse 28 tells us, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And when he comes again, it won't be to add anything new to our salvation. It'll be to enforce the terms that he has already established. Well, chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things. Now say I was on a trip. I was away for three weeks on a long trip. And the first night back, Kathy fixed me a romantic dinner. Sounds good. And yet instead of joining her in the dining room, what if I were to take her picture off the wall? and start kissing and talking to her photo. While the real Kathy Adams was in the kitchen sitting at the table. You would classify me a certifiable nut. (laughs) Yet this is what the Hebrew believers were doing by returning to the sacrifices and the traditions of Judaism. They were embracing the shadows and the symbols while they were ignoring the substance. And they were acting nutty. Verse 2 For the very image of the things can never be or can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. If the Old Testament sacrifices had truly eradicated sin, they wouldn't have needed to be repeated over and over again. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices utterly failed in producing a lasting resolution to sin. But God provided a solution. Born in Bethlehem. You know, usually at Christmas time, when we recall Jesus' birth, we go to the Gospel of Matthew, where we read about Joseph and the wise men. Or we'll turn in our Bibles to Mary, to Luke, to Mary, and to the shepherds. We don't usually think to turn to Hebrews, but we should. For here in Hebrews 10, verse 5, we find the most vital and the most overlooked scene in the Christmas narrative. For here was Jesus' parting statement to his father just before he left his eternal home for his embryonic home. Verse 5. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin, You had no pleasure. For centuries, Jesus had sat on his eternal throne and he had watched the Father in heaven as he received sacrifice after sacrifice. He saw that they produced in him no satisfaction, that there was always a reluctance in the Father's acceptance. The look in his eye indicated that all was not right. The animals offered were tainted with sin themselves. All creation had been affected by the fall of mankind. The father understood that only a sinless sacrifice, untainted blood, could at the same time sanitize a sin-stained world and satisfy a sinless God. But where would God go for such a sinless sacrifice? And that's when his only son, that's when the eternal son, bravely stepped up and said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me. God is spirit, and spirit doesn't pierce. Spirit doesn't bruise or bleed. And thus, given his mission, Jesus needed a body, for he was born to die. God became a man to take that nail for you. Verse 7 For then I said, and Jesus is now quoting Psalm 40, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. On every page of the scripture, buried in every ritual, seen in every sacrifice, in the volume of the book, there is a prophetic picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. When it came time for him to lay down his life, he was obedient to God's will. For previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. God took no permanent pleasure in the blood of animals. What satisfied his sense of justice was the sinless life and the sacrifice of his only son. By that will, 
we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. For a thousand years, the Levitical priests had repeated these temple rituals. For Jews in Jerusalem, the sights and the smells and the sounds of the temple were as familiar as the sunrise and the sunset. And yet in just a few years after the penning of this book, the Roman legion will invade Jerusalem and they will burn that temple to the ground, putting an end to these sacrifices. The writer here is preparing these Jews for that coming event. He's calling the Hebrews. He's telling them that the sacrificial or the sacrifice of Jesus ended the temple operation. It, it put an end. It made irrelevant the temple sacrificial system. It's now obsolete and irrelevant. For once the ultimate sacrifice was made, you no longer needed the shadow. He says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Once Jesus completed the job of atoning for our sin, he sat down at God's right hand, a position of honor. And today he is there. At God's right hand, waiting for the time when God defeats his enemies and puts them under his feet. And Jesus receives dominion. It's interesting, the Old Testament priests never sat down. <laughs> there was furniture in the Old Testament play, in the holy place, but there were no chairs. For the priest was in perpetual motion. He was always on his feet. For under the law, his work was never finished. Yet when Jesus offered his sacrifice, he then sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus completed the work of redemption once and for all, a job well done. And that's when he sat down next to the Father to await his exaltation. Verse 14, for by one offering, one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In Christ before God, the work of our acceptance is finished. It's now a done deal. We are perfected forever. And in us, before others, God's Spirit is at work, deepening our dedication. We are being sanctified. Both are true. We are perfected forever, and we are being sanctified. Spiritually and eternally, the work is finished. Currently and practically, we're a work in progress. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now remember back in verse 9, he takes away the first to establish the second. These Hebrew believers, as well as believers today, had swapped an old covenant for a new covenant. And the new covenant, remember, was threefold. There were three promises. God promised us a new heart, a new start, and a new part. 
God's Spirit writes His will on our hearts. He gives us a love for God and a love for others. He writes it on our hearts. Then we get a new start, a clean slate. What God forgives, He forgets, and He forgives all of our sin, past, present, and future. And then we have a new part. Faith in Jesus now takes the place of the old sacrifices. Verse 18 says, For now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Solomon's temple had a veil of separation, a huge curtain that hung in front of the Holy of Holies. It was a reminder that God was off limits to mortal men. And yet the moment Jesus died, Matthew tells us that that veil literally tore from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. For the way to God is now open. And thus today, the veil between God and man is the torn body of our Lord Jesus. Now you come to God, not by jumping through religious hoops, but you come to God over his dead body. That's right. Believe in Jesus and the door to God opens. Verse 21 tells us, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. In Christ, we now have access to the Father. So how should we respond? Well, here in these next verses, he's going to give us three commands. I like to call them the salad commands. For they begin, let us, let us, let us. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Since Jesus has cleansed us and opened the door to God for us, what are we waiting on? We need to enter in. We need to spend time with him. One of the great Christian catechisms states as our duty to know God and to enjoy him forever. Let us draw near. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If we've been given a lifeline to God, then hold on. Don't waver. Don't drift. Don't let it slip from your hands. Continue in your faith, for God is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. You know, I think the quarantine that we faced during the pandemic reminded many of us how much we need to come together. With live stream, the pieces don't get assembled, do they? We stay separated. But God deems our assembly and our connection as essential. Without it, there's no stirring up to love and to good works. And so let us enter. Let us enter into God's presence. Let us hold on to God's promises. And let us stir up one another. Let's hang out with God, hold on to God, and do it together. My faith fuels your faith, and vice versa. And then he says in verse 26, For if we sin willfully 
after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Now understand, the sin in view here isn't a simple slip-up. This is not a foul word in the heat of battle, or a beer too many, or an outburst of anger. No, this is the sin that we've been dealing with throughout the book. It's the sin of deliberately denying the sufficiency of Jesus. Remember, the temptation these Hebrews were facing was to renounce Christ and to trust again in the institutions of Judaism. And the writer here assures them that since salvation comes by faith, if they commit the sin of stop of not having faith in Jesus, then it will be impossible for them to be saved. He says, if we sin willfully, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, turn your back on Jesus, God's only answer for sin, and how then can you be saved? Verse 28, for anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he have thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? See, the law of Moses, the inferior co covenant, it had severe consequences if you rejected its terms. But how much worse will your fate be if you reject the superior covenant and insult Christ? See, to say that a person can be right with God by good deeds or by religious rituals is to render the precious blood of Jesus irrelevant. You have insulted the spirit of his grace. You have made a mockery of the cross of Jesus. In verse 30 here, the author of Hebrews quotes twice from Deuteronomy 32. He says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. In other words, God is not afraid to judge. So take heed. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a God of mercy and grace. But if you reject his only son, if you callously trample the son that he sent to die in your place, there is no punishment too harsh for you. Verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. See, shortly after coming to Christ, these Hebrews had been hassled for their faith, even to the point of having their possessions confiscated. See, they had probably been excommunicated by their families and forced to return their inheritances and some of their keepsakes. And yet they had continued in Christ. You know, even today, Christian converts in Israel are similarly persecuted. 
Every Christian experiences times when their faith offers them no real worldly advantage. Instead of making us rich, it causes us loss. Instead of popularity, sometimes our faith draws persecution. Instead of promotion, sometimes we get put down. And in those times, we need to hunker down. We will receive a great reward, an eternal reward no less, if we don't lose heart and if we hold fast to our faith in Jesus. And so the writer exhorts them in verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Do not cast it away. And losing their confidence in Christ was not just a theoretical threat. It was a very real possibility. In John 10, verse 28, Jesus made a promise that I believe is often misinterpreted today. He said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Friends, no one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. But that doesn't mean that a believer can't get up and walk out. That's why you have to continue in your faith. Author G.K. Chesterton once said, The only way to love anything is to realize it can be lost. And that is especially true of God's blessings and our salvation. I believe it's naive to teach that just because you made a decision for Jesus at a point in your past, that there is now nothing you can do to jeopardize your salvation. That's not only wrong, it breeds a false sense of security. We should be encouraged to persevere. For verse 36 tells us, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Jesus is coming again, but a wait is involved. There's always a lag time between the giving of a promise and the receiving of that promise. And that's why believing is not enough. You have to continue to believe. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is tough talk from the writer of the book of Hebrews. Draw away from your faith, and you are no longer pleasing to God. That's what he says. The just, those who are right with God, are because they live by faith. They don't just have faith. They live by faith. And the tough talk isn't over. For he says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition. There are some who draw back to perdition. Literally, damnation or ruin. But we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Stop having faith and you're stumbling toward hell. To be saved, you have to continue in your faith. For in Christ we have a better way. So let's enter in. Let's hold on. And let's stir up one another to love and good works. Let's hold fast to our faith in Jesus. And in chapter 11, we'll be encouraged to do so by some amazing examples. Let's pray.